Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining me on today's show, where we are talking about brain boosting, the art of mental muscle toning. My first guest is Dr. Elaine Fox. She is a psychologist, author, and the head of the School of Psychology at the University of Adelaide in Australia. Prior to her move to Australia, Dr. Fox founded and directed the Oxford Center for Emotions and Effective Neuroscience also known as OCEAN, at the University of Oxford, a renowned research center exploring the nature of resilience and mental well-being. Dr. Fox is a cognitive psychologist by training. She is a leading mental health researcher combining genetics, psychology, and neuroscience in her work. And I am thrilled to have her in the house to talk about her newest book, Switchcraft, the Hidden Power of Mental Agility. Elaine, thanks for joining us on the show today. Hi, Lisa. Wonderful um, to be here. And thanks very much for having me on. Oh, my gosh. It is a pleasure because, firstly, I love this subject matter, you know, the agile okay. mind. You know, what can we do? We can teach old dogs new tricks, right? Yes, absolutely. Exactly. And uh, yeah, it's absolutely, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, agility is, is so central to um, resilience and just being resilient and, and to being adaptable. Um, and, you know, I first kind of, uh, I mean, I've been working on this research for, for many years, actually, Lisa, but if I can tell you just a little story uh, to start, I, it, it made me laugh out loud on a train in London, actually, many years ago. I was reading a story about a group of friends a, uh, incompetent armed robbers who were um, robbing a, um, a, a, a grocery store. And um, one of the robbers was actually a bus driver and they were using his bus as the getaway vehicle. And when the police were tracking them afterwards, when they were trying to get away, they realized that the bus was actually following its usual route. <laughs> so rather, rather than necessarily getting the fastest way away, it was actually going its normal route. So they were obviously apprehended very easily. But, you know, it made me think, it made me laugh out loud, but it made me think that actually there's a fundamental psychological truth in there because of course when we get very stressed when we get very anxious we tend to refer to the familiar and we tend to think and think and behave in a very rigid kind of way so the more we can get rid of that rigidity and be agile the more uh, successful and adaptable we'll tend to be let's talk about the importance of switchcrafting and defining what it means to be a switchcrafter 
Exactly. Well, I mean, switchcraft is a word I obviously kind of made up. But again, I have to thank my, my husband, Kevin, for, for coming up with the title, which I think is a great title, because the book is really about, you know, when do we stick with what we're doing and when do we switch? There's times we really have to make that decision to switch. So switchcraft is really it's a set of mental talents, as I call them, um, or mental tools, if you like, to help us cope in a very uncertain world. Because the reality is we do live in a deeply uncertain world. And it's always been like that. It feels very, very uncertain at the moment. We obviously have the war in Ukraine. We've had the COVID pandemic. We've had political upheaval all around the world. Um, but actually, if we think about it, you know, I mean, you or I, Lisa, wouldn't be here uh, today if our ancestors um, hadn't been very agile because they had to deal with lots of uncertainty. And previous generations have lived through wars and famines and earthquakes and you know all sorts of disasters. So switchcraft is really the set of mental tools that help us cope with such an uncertain world. I like your approach. It's very optimistic, too. And of course, that is part of what switchcraft is about, right? It is one of the skills that we need in order to navigate. Absolutely. And that's, um, you know, one of the things I really try to do in switchcraft is really make the point that not only can we cope in very tough times and very uncertain times, but we can really thrive. We can really learn to thrive um, in, in those kind of times. Um, and I often use the analogy of um, a golf playing golf because um, the idea in switchcraft is really that there isn't one size fits all. There's no one technique or psychological trick we can use that will work for everything in life. Um, and just if you think of a golfer going on to a golf course with a big bag of clubs, you know, I often think, oh, they carry so many heavy clubs around this golf course. Um, but actually, if you think about it, they need that because if you're taking a very long shot, you need a driver to help you. You know, if, if you're on the putting green, you need a different type of uh, shot. If you're in the bunker, you need a different type of club to help you. If a golfer went out on the golf club with just one golf club they'd be brilliant on one type of shot but actually they'd really struggle on most of the golf course and, and kind of life is a bit like that if you think of it in terms of we have different psychological techniques different tools which are great for certain situations but absolutely not great for other situations so things like mindfulness and um, growth mindset and um, grittiness you know all of these things are really good there's a really good evidence base but they're not good for every single situation we're likely to face so the the message in switchcraft is really we need a variety of techniques Techniques, a variety of tools, if you like. And then we need to get the skill of, of knowing when to use the right tool for the right situation. In Switchcraft, you talk about four powerful psychological talents. And I have not often heard of psychological skills as being talents, and they are. And I would love for you to share them. Absolutely. Well, it's interesting because I, I kind of came up with using the word talent because I was using tool and I thought tool sounds a bit harsh to me. And I thought, well, what am I really talking about here? And, and I think, you know, I, I really do think these are talents. Um, so the four kind of, as I call them in the book, um, pillars really of switchcraft are the first one is agility, which we've mentioned already. And, and arguably, that's probably the most important. So the ability to be very flexible and to respond in a reflexive way to different situations we're faced with. But of course, it's not agility for just its own sake. There's no point just changing just for the sake of it. So that agility is informed by the other three talents, if you like. Um, and one of those is self-awareness. So really getting a deeper understanding of ourselves, really digging deeply into what drives us. You know, what makes you happy deep down? What are your inner benchmarks of your happiness? And I think the pandemic has made many people rethink their lives. So 
you know, really understanding ourselves in a deeper way is really important. So that's one of the talents um, that kind of bolters our agility. Um, another is situational awareness. Um, so just being aware of our surroundings and the context we're in. Again, many of us go around um, really not noticing the world around us. You know, sometimes people are literally stuck looking at their phones as they're walking along the street. <laughs> um, but, you know, a lot of the time we're actually a bit blind. We often kind of we, we kind of look at the world and, and, and think, it's it's as we want it to be rather than actually what it is you know um, so it, it's really tuning into the surroundings and trying to get a deeper understanding of the context and what really matters to the people around us um, and, and that helps us to behave in, in in the most appropriate way and then the the final one is emotional awareness which is kind of part of, of self-awareness but it's a separate thing I think because really embracing all of our emotions our negative emotions as well as the positive emotions yes. is so it's so important because that helps us tune into our intuition as well it helps us tune into our body um and so so those four things agility being aware of ourselves being aware of our situation and being aware and understanding our emotions they're the four pillars or or talents if you like of switchcraft and these can be cultivated you know we might not start out possessing high levels of all of these but we can train through practice to absolutely. gain more intelligence in these areas. That's absolutely right. And, and all of these and, and what um, I hope I've done, I think the Switchcraft uh, you know, is, is packed full of tips and techniques and exercises that people can use to try and strengthen each of these different talents. Um, so things like, for example, in self-awareness, there's different tasks there, how we can learn how to become better at really developing an awareness of ourselves. And we could do that at a fairly superficial level in terms of testing our kind of personality, if you like. People love kind of testing their personality tendencies, which is an interesting kind of level of understanding, but it's actually quite superficial. Um, there's a, an American psychology, and uh, Don Abrams, who um, you know, talks about uh, personality as, as being the psychology of the stranger. Um, and it's, it's, in other words, what he's saying is that, you know, we, it's, we can understand ourselves in the same way we would understand a stranger by just knowing our personality tendencies uh -huh. so so it's really kind of interesting so to go much um, deeper we um we need to go into a personal narrative so you know so i have four methods in the in those kind of chapters on self-awareness and developing your your personal narrative the stories that mean something to you on a personal level that will give you a much much deeper understanding of yourself so there's tasks in there so for example a simple one might be you know you could look back to say a situation that maybe the, the highest point in your life or the lowest point in your life and just sit down and write out about a hundred words just describing that in as much detail as you can and by kind of really thinking of those stories that have a personal meaning to you you can really get a deeper understanding of of yourself and what is really driving you and what's what's really important to you so it's a much deeper level of analysis than a personality and then i've got a whole section in there on just tuning into our body a bit because i think a lot of us in the modern world have have tuned out if you like of of our body and and actually our physiology is giving us a lot of information all of the time which can be really helpful again as i mentioned for our intuition um so simply learning to to just you know 
if you like, quieten our mind a little bit and just listen to what our body is telling us can be so, so important. Let's take a break. And when we come back, we will continue the conversation with Dr. Elaine Fox. We're talking about switchcraft, the hidden power of mental agility. To learn more, please go to harpercollins.com and check out Switchcraft by Elaine Fox on Twitter at Prof Elaine Fox and on Instagram. That handle is the same at Prof Elaine Fox. Here comes the pause. We'll be right back. Hang on. Before we pause, let's talk about holiday gifting. This year, I'm committed to giving meaningful gifts that help connect me to the people who matter most. One of my favorite presents to give is StoryWorth, an online service that helps you and your loved ones preserve precious memories through meaningful storytelling. StoryWorth is one of the easiest and most creative ways to strengthen bonds, preserve memories, and take a deep dive into family history and create a precious keepsake. Last year, I gave one of my bonus moms story worth. Her precious keepsake book has allowed me to know her in new ways, especially when she was a young, carefree college student. StoryWorth makes gift-giving hassle-free, and your loved ones will feel special, unique, and connected no matter how near or far they are. When you purchase StoryWorth for someone you love, each week they will receive an email with a meaningful question designed to elicit entertaining, surprising, and sometimes moving responses. For example, if you could see into the future, what would you want to find out? After one year, StoryWorth will compile all stories, including photos, into a beautifully printed hardbound book that will be a treasure for generations. With StoryWorth, I am giving those I love most a thoughtful, personal gift from the heart and preserving memories and stories for years to come. Go to StoryWorth.com HH and save $10 on your first purchase. That's StoryWorth.com HH to save $10 on your first purchase. Here comes that pause. We'll be right back. And that is a guarantee. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. And we're back continuing the conversation with my guest today, Dr. Elaine Fox. We're talking about brain boosting, the art of mental muscle toning. Let's get back to the conversation. So Elaine, let's talk a little bit about the importance of the openness to experience because your work focuses on many different areas of fundamental science, including cognitive psychology and neuroscience. But what exactly does the openness to experience do for us? Well, openness to experience is is hugely in, important because, uh, you know, as we mentioned, it's very, very easy to become very rigid in how we think and in how we feel. And I, I actually call it mental arthritis in, in Switchcraft <laughs> <laughs> uh, because it, it is a bit like that. We, and it, it, it happens to all of us. You know, we, we resist change. We don't really like to change. Um, so openness to experience is really about genuinely looking out into the world and saying, OK, I'll try out different things to try and just... If you like, open up your mind a bit, open up your brain a little bit, because we, we have no chance really of um, of becoming more agile if, if we have a closed mind. So and 
you know, so when we look at resilience and look at people who are very agile, one of the key factors that people who are very agile um, have is that they tend to be very open. And openness to experience is one of the big five personality traits. So you probably know the big five, which is things like extroversion, neuroticism, agreeableness, conscientiousness, which is kind of grittiness. And openness to experience is one of those big five, which explains kind of human personality, if you like. Um, and things like, so people who are very high in openness to experience, Excuse me. They have a very wide range of interests. They tend to be, you know, very intellectually curious about things. So, so they're easily bored. Really, that's one of the downsides, if you like, of being very open. You could be easily bored and and always looking for new experiences. Often quite introspective. But the most important thing in terms of switchcraft is people who are open to experience tend to be much more comfortable with uncertainty. And as you said, the, the world is really uncertain. And so the more comfortable we can be with that, the more likely we are to come up with good ways of coping with it. Well, you know, in, in a certain sense, uncertainty is the only guarantee, right? Everything else is not a guarantee. We can be certain that things will change, they will be different, and that life is filled with uncertainty. I mean, that's kind exactly. of a, a promise. It, exactly. And that's absolutely, <laughs> that's absolutely right. It, it's one of the reasons I wrote Switchcraft, to be honest, Lisa, because I think, you know, a, a lot of us kind of desperately try and resist change, even though we all know that actually, you know, uncertainty is 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 certain. You're right. It's, it's absolutely one of those things that is guaranteed. So we have to just face that and say, OK, life is going to be uncertain. Unexpected things will happen. So how do we best deal with that? So rather than putting our heads in the sand and saying, I'm going to try and keep things at the same as as, as ever, you know, and, and I did, a lot of my work in the early days was with people with quite high levels of anxiety and, and worry. And one of the things about very, very anxious people is that they absolutely try and control every aspect of their lives, um, which to some extent that could be a good thing. I mean, we all try to make our life as kind of predictable and as kind of, you know, organized as possible. But of course, the reality is you can't do that totally. You can't, you know, unexpected things just do happen. So the problem for a lot of anxious people is because they try to control every single aspect of their lives, as soon as one even tiny thing goes wrong, everything kind of tends to collapse and they kind of think, oh, you know, it's all gone wrong and they, they go into a spiral. So I think really accepting, genuinely accepting that, you know, unexpected things are going to happen. Life is uncertain. So how, how best do we deal with that? That's really the question I think we have to face. And that's the question I hope uh, Switchcraft answers. It gives people lots of tools to help them deal with that. Let's talk about intellectual humility, because this is a subject that is being spoken about quite a bit, at least in the U.S., and I love this term. Yes, it's part of openness. Part of openness is the idea that being genuinely accepting of the fact that you might be wrong. You know, I might actually be wrong. Now, none of us like that. Again, we all like to say, go, oh, I've got it right. Intellectual humility is simply that stance saying that, you know, actually, maybe I have got it wrong. Maybe there's new evidence that's come in that, you know, I need to look at the world in a different way. It's, it's just a really important aspect. As you said, it's becoming quite a hot topic in psychology now. The idea that, you know, humbleness, intellectual humbleness is actually very, very important. A lot of research, for example, has found that um, people who are high in intellectual uh, humility are much more tolerant of ambiguity. So, as we said, that's one of the important abilities to get through very tough times is just to be 
used to uncertainty and, and because they have a genuine sense that they don't know everything, they tend to be much more tolerant of ambiguity and realise that, you know, they may need to find out more information about things. Whereas people who are less intellectually humble um, tend to be very resistant to any new information. They tend to just simply think they are, are right already and, you know, that's that's it. So one of the downsides of humbleness, of course, is that it can appear sometimes that you're not as confident as you might be. So, for, so a lot of politicians, and I won't mention any names, but I think we all <laughs> we all know we all know a few. Yes, we know <laughs> so, who that is. <laughs> they, definitely, they definitely are not intellectually humble. Probably the opposite. But you know, just looking at a broader range of, of politicians and leaders around the world, it, the, there is research showing that actually it can actually backfire against people when they're going for elections, for example, if they kind of admit that actually, yeah, they may not know everything about a certain topic or they may be wrong on something, that can come across sometimes as being a bit indecisive, even though overall we know that decision-making is actually generally better if people are intellectually humble because they're more open to information and therefore more likely to get the right information, really. Do you find in your research and in working with younger students that younger people tend to be more intellectually humble or less? Or vice versa. Certainly my impression is that younger people are much more intellectually humble. And obviously, if you look at children, children don't know a lot of information. So they're very open to new information. They kind of realize that. And I think as we get older, we get more entrenched in our beliefs. And that's when I think your mind literally starts closing, if you like. And I think definitely it is the case as, as people get older, they do tend to get a little bit more. It's kind of the same as rigidity in how we think. It's it's just, you know, you, you, you're kind of you're very resistant to change your, your long held beliefs. And but people do do that, you know, and I know with my own mother, for example, it's quite interesting because I was brought up in, in Ireland, in, in Dublin. And when I was a young child, it was a very, very religious country, almost a fundamentalist country, a Catholic country. And my mother had been quite religious all her life. But because of all the scandals that had come up about you know, sex abuse in the church and everything, she, she really, really found it difficult to change. Like she, her view was that every single priest or, you know, you met was a really, good, a, a really good man. And I think it took her a long time to accept that actually that's not always the case. Yeah, most of them probably are, but actually there are some people who aren't. And it, I remember I almost saw that in her kind of as she was getting older and older, she suddenly, you know, opened her eyes and thought, actually, you know, you, you do need to change. So so I think, you know, obviously we, we do get a bit more set in our ways as we get older. And, and when we see somebody who is much more open like that and, and intellectually humble as they get older, it's, it's quite a, it's very refreshing, actually. You know, there's a few people I have met who in their 80s and who are, you know, extremely, they're still open to all sorts of new things. They still think, oh, I probably got that wrong. Um, and it's actually very, very refreshing. But I think you're right in general. I think there's no doubt that all of us just get a bit more set in our ways as we get older. And and in a sense, that's what Switchcraft is all about. It's trying to resist that as much as we can and, and just try to keep our mind as fluid and as open as, as possible. I want to just talk about one of your earlier books, which is called Rainy Brain, Sunny Brain. It was an international bestseller. And I'd love for you to share a little bit about that. Great. Well, thanks, Lisa. Yeah, so um, Rainy Brain, Sunny Brain came out, um, I think it was in about 2012. Um, but I think it's still, it's it, it's about my own research on really asking the question, you know, why are some of us optimists and why are some of us pessimists? And what are the different traits and what are the different 
elements of that. So it's, I, I wrote it in many ways um, to get away from this idea that, uh, you know, happiness and well-being can, can be gained only through positive thinking. So I think a lot of self-help books tell you, if you think happy thoughts, <laughs> everything will be wonderful. <laughs> and of course, not... <laughs> No, absolutely. And, and the psychological research shows us that that's, of course, not the case, that it's it's actually more about psychological actions in many ways and, yeah. and actions, po- sorry, positive actions rather than um, positive thinking necessarily. Positive thinking is important. I'm not saying it's not important, but it's not the only thing. If, you know, you have a situation where you there's a lump somewhere, for example, and if you just think happy thoughts, the chances are that's not going to be very successful. Whereas if you go to a doctor and get it checked out, you know, then you have some chance, hopefully, of, you know, things being resolved. Um, so so I realized in the psychological research, there's about a number of different components to optimism um, and many of those other components. So one of them is positive thinking. One of them is positive action. So actually taking positive actions like going and checking out a medical condition, for example. Um, but there's also things like just tenacity. So there's a wonderful experiment if I've time to explain it. It's not one of my own, but it's one I use every year with my um, undergraduate students as a lab task. And what you do is you simply divide people into optimists and pessimists based on a questionnaire measure. And then we give them a test of, you know, these anagram tests where you have, say, five letters jumbled up and people have to come up with an English word as quickly as they can. Yes, so, I know those. So, <laughs> yes, exactly. So that's all you have to do. So people have to, uh, five letters come up on the computer screen and they have to come up with a word as quickly as they can. And then once they do that, another word comes up and this goes on. Um, and so what we do is when we get to about four or five um, it's actually an impossible anagram. So five letters come up where there's actually no possible word that 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 people can resolve. Now, obviously, as students, particularly in Oxford, when I was doing this in Oxford, people are extremely competitive. So people really try and figure out the word before they give up. And so the simple measure is how long does it take people before they give up? And it's one of those studies that it's unbelievable. It replicates every time when you do it in a lab class. What you find is when you look at the results, the optimists, the people who have scored on the opt- higher on the optimism, tend to take significantly longer, about 20 to 30% longer before they give up than the pessimists. So that's wow. nothing to do with that's nothing to do with positive thinking. It's, you know, it's it's actually all to do with simple tenacity, just sticking with something for a little bit longer. And of course, you know, that's why optimism is often related to success in business, for example. Um, it's nothing to do with positive thinking. It's it's well, I would say nothing, but it's 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 not all to do with positive thinking. It's very much to do with these kind of other components like tenacity, positive actions, um, and and the other thing which I we probably won't have time to go into, but is a sense of control. So optimists tend to have a much stronger sense that they have some control over their own destiny. And there's some very Um, nice experiments looking at that. And and, and we know that that's very empowering. And and the interesting thing, Lisa, is even if it's wrong, even if you don't actually have much control over the world around you, if you think you have at least some control, and that actually is very empowering and very good for your general health and well-being. I wanted to go back to... um... The words uh, higher distress tolerance come to mind, that the optimist may possess that stick to and be able to tolerate their frustration a little bit longer than the pessimist. Absolutely. And, and that is absolutely true. There's, there's a lot of evidence for that. And, and of course, it loops back to what we were talking about in terms of uncertainty. You know, it's, it's just being a bit more comfortable with uncertainty. And and there is some evidence that um, that's the case with optimists, that, you know, they are just a little bit more comfortable um, with a lot of uncertainty. And so therefore, they're able to step back a bit and try and find a workaround and try and find a solution to whatever the problem is, where 
people who are more pessimistic, they tend to be quite rigid in how they go about solving problems. So if they're if they're if whatever technique they're using isn't successful, they'll tend to give up. So whereas an optimist will say, okay, that doesn't work, so let's try something else and maybe try something else. So it, again, it's about you know being a bit more open, being a bit more agile, and and resisting that kind of res- rigidity of just using one or two techniques. And you were talking about control over our destiny that optimists seem to possess, whether it's the illusion or the belief. I don't know what is actually true, but is it maybe it's just control over attitude? The optimist chooses that perspective. It, that's a really interesting point, actually. And I think you're right. I think a lot of the time it is choice, choice to say, OK, do I have something to control? And and one of the things we often advise people when you're dealing with a crisis, for example, is the very first thing, as you know, Lisa, is you know, ask yourself, well, what can I control and what can I not control? And I think the problem is a lot of times people try and control things they can't control. So, um, you know, but actually there will almost certainly be something that you can have some control over. So focusing on that is a much more positive way forward um, so it is about kind of attitude to sense but it's, it's also if do I have time to just say to tell you a little experiment that was done that, quick 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 yes okay, <laughs> very, very quickly and I'm sorry I can't remember the person who did this but it, it was a, a, an American study that was done and it was done in a, um, a nursing home so for aged care um, and so there were a lot of elderly people there and very quickly the researchers gave everybody a pot plant and a, Ellen Langer a, a, it was Ellen Langer at Harvard. And, oh, Langer, yeah, you know the study. Yes, you know the study. So the, the, basically the bottom line of the study was that some of the residents were told that they had to um, look after the plant themselves and they could watch their movie, their video, anytime they, they wanted to. Whereas some of the other residents, it was just looked after by the nursing staff. So they didn't have any control. And what they found was really quite dramatic results in that not only did, um, you know, were people physically much healthier who had some control over their pot plant, a simple level of control, they actually lived a lot longer. So the longevity differences were actually different be, between them. So so that was a really nice study that really showed in a very dramatic way how just having that small amount of control over something in your life made a huge difference. Yeah, I, I, I do remember that study. And she is great. Her work is so She's good. Great, yeah. <laughs> no, absolutely wonderful. And it's a lovely, lovely study, actually. Yeah. Oh my gosh, we're out of time, but come back and hang out with me anytime because I am a fan of Switchcraft, The Hidden Power of Mental Agility. I love your work and this is good stuff that we all need to pay attention to. To learn more about Professor Elaine Fox, please go to harpercollins.com and check out Switchcraft Elaine Fox on Twitter and Instagram. That handle is at Prof Elaine Fox. Elaine, thank you so much. I want to hear more. I mean, I feel like your stories are endless. Well, thanks so much, Lisa. I really enjoyed it. I'd I'd love to come back sometime. We're doing it. Here comes the pause. We'll be right back. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. We're back. Let's get back to our topic of the day, brain boosting the art of mental muscle toning. My next guests are Dr. Amit Goswami and Dr. Valentina Onisor. 
Amit Goswani, who's been a guest on our show before, is a retired professor of physics from the University of Oregon, where he served from 1968 through 1997. In 1985, he discovered the solution to the quantum measurement problem and developed a science of experience explicating how consciousness splits into subject and object. In 1999, he founded the Quantum Activism Movement. Dr. Valentina Onisor specializes in family medicine, where she integrates various systems of alternative medicine into her medical practice. Committed to consciousness, awakening, relative sciences for over two decades, and a pioneer of quantum integrative medicine, Valentina also teaches yoga and meditation, and together they've written The Quantum Brain, Understand, Rewire, and Optimize Your Brain. Welcome back, Amit, and welcome, Valentina. Thanks for joining us today on the show. Thank you, Lisa, for inviting us. Oh, it is always a pleasure when you and I get to hang out, and I am delighted that you have brought along your colleague, Valentina, today. And you're both in India, which puts a smile on my face because it is a my own personal happy place. Good. Let's talk about what quantum means and what makes something quantum. Okay. The basic word quantum uh, means a discrete quantity, and it is. Uh, quanta is the elementary particle of uh, energy, but that does not really uh, describe why quantum, in what way is quantum different from everyday. And this is the whole thing, though. We think science, the new world. The whole idea of Newtonian physics is to look at objects as objects. They are determined objects, they are concrete objects, they manifest concrete and determined determined by the forces, determined by the initial conditions that they have. You can uh, figure out everything about them uh, if you know uh, the forces and initial conditions. This is the idea that got quantum physics discovered that no objects are like that at all. Material objects at the uh, submicroscopic level, when they are, they are quanta, they clearly display a nature that can only be explained as possibility waves. There are waves of possibility. In other words, is not a real uh, object at a given position when I measure it. Instead, when I measure it, I'm choosing, consciousness is choosing among many positions that the electron could have. The consciousness is actually, is actually choosing the position the, that the electron is actually seen. Now, of course, confusion arises because observer consciousness is the ego consciousness, but quantum physics says that behind that ego, there is a unity consciousness where all of us are potentially one. Choice happens then, and when that choice happens, then possibility objects become concrete. Now, you know, we went through very fast, but every object is like this. Even um, there is no manifest object without consciousness making it manifest. It's the basic difference between quantum way of looking at things and 
putting at things. Newtonian physics says that everything is already out there. We are irrelevant. We are just onlookers. But quantum physics says, no, we are very relevant. Objects are just possibilities. There is no experience. There is nothing concrete, nothing manifest until we look. So that is the view that makes quantum so special. And it is what of course, why, of course, it cares a lot of people who would like to have a deterministic world so that could, they could predict and control. So, Valentina, I want to ask you a question about, you know, you explained to me very succinctly before we you know, started talking on the air about where happiness resides, right? That we've got it backwards, that the more we go to a very primal state of being in our awareness, there is where we find that happiness lives. Talk a little bit more about that. Sure. So the idea is, first of all, that we have to see, asking ourselves the question, if are we more than our brain? And the point is that we can be if our consciousness is beyond the brain. And of course, you know that these brain scientists refute such proposal, accusing dualism, right? So how can consciousness be a non-physical dual entity? And if it were so, how does it interact with the material brain? And the quantum science is giving us this revolutionary new track to think of consciousness and the brain. And the quantum model of consciousness and the brain is giving us predictions that neuroscientists have uh, verified in the laboratory. So um, the journey towards happiness and also towards the quantum self is a journey of increasing intelligence and also of increasing health and happiness, as you will see. So, uh, and why? Because it, we speak about the doorway to an expanded consciousness of infinite new potentialities. All these new potentialities, yes, they reside there, but not um, in the condition. In the condition brain, we speak about the base level human condition. So let me just uh, emphasize just in a few words about this base level human condition, which is about this conditioned brain. Okay. And then, of course, we can talk, if you want, about the negative emotions, which create this helter-skelter in ourselves and the interactions with the world. Um, because the brain scientists identified places in the brain's interior middle, the limbic brain, uh, the negative emotion brain circuits, they are called, as the source of these negative emotions. Yeah, And they create, of course, this mental stress and chronic disease, that even cancer, heart disease, and so on. So the base level human condition, again, which are related with the conditioned brain, that, yeah, um, so first of all, we have this uh, quantum self or the ego, yeah, that part of which we call ego, the I, me polarity, how we experience the subjecthood, all right? So all that me-centeredness, briefly put, yeah? <laughs> then, yeah. Or the little self. <laughs> yeah, 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 but it's keeping us, uh, I mean, whenever you're contracted, you're not happy, that's for sure, you know? And uh, when you start giving, for example, you feel so much better, for example. So whatever takes you towards an expansion, it's, you know, it's, it's not coming from that conditioned behavior. Okay, and then the second is this negative emotional brain circuits, which are built into the brain, and part of them, they seem to be instinctual, and they are, it's unconscious triggering, is followed by immediate survival-related action, and later thoughts of emotions, yeah? So unfortunately, this imagination imagination enters the picture here, and the habit called uh, mentalization of feeling, we misuse our negative emotional brain circuits and cause 
this mental stress. And then the third, so we have these pleasure circuits, which are giving us dopamine, endorphine, and other molecular high when activated. And this leads to addiction. So there are these opiate drugs that work on the brain like endorphin does. And one habit leads to another, and drug and drug-like addictions are very hard to quit. And funny thing is you have also this informational processing, addiction to internet nowadays, and addiction to all kinds of things like that. Yeah. So this, again, they are part of the conditioned brain. But what about the well-trained brain, you know, where we are able to really work with and train the mind to, uh, and this is the rewiring process that you speak about, you know, the, the neuroplasticity of the mind. I think that's really more of what I'm referring to, that we can rework our brains and strengthen our mental fitness uh, there is a, uh, I think what we are saying so far might be open to a misconception that we are not saying that there is nothing good in the conditioned brain. Conditioned brain, of course, uh, can process mental thinking and some of the mental thinking that we do, if we do it in a focused way, are very useful. And indeed, the uh, conditioned brain uh, has a pattern of the ego development, which we do it properly, with if parents are kind and loving, then indeed we can create children who can focus, who does not have the usual problems that create unhappiness, the information processing and all that. So uh, undoubtedly, one should not get the impression that all people who grew up in today are of the brain impacted that were so that we would not be here speaking. Obviously, we three somehow have escaped the conditioned brain in the way we are describing it. But the point <laughs> is that we are, <laughs> point that we are making is that many people don't know that there is something beyond the conditioned brain if you want really, really happiness and health and uh, live in positive emotions, then you can if you wake up to the quantum brain. That's yeah. the whole message. Yeah. Well, and, and that clarifies the intent of, of the book, The Quantum Brain, Understand, Rewire, and Optimize Your Brain. Exactly. You know, and I think that explains it very well. What we want people to understand is this other dimension as well, right? That is is the spiritual and emotional sides that exist within all of us, you know, humans and animal creatures. Talk a little bit about that. I'll just say this uh, to a, for a beginning, that the, when we look at the brain, you know, uh, the brain gave us a surprise, the researchers themselves. We have these two cells that the, that Valentin already mentioned. One cell reflects the one self reflects the quantum. We call it the quantum self. This is the self we experience when we are creative, when we are in love, when we are um, in positivity, when we are in tweeting, uh, when we are spiritual. And then we have this ordinary ego when we are constricted, when we are uh, me-centered, when we are negative. Uh, all this. Okay. But in between, there is a P-conscious. It takes about a half a time between the present-centered quantum self-experience, which usually people don't have, and then the ego experience. People have the experience half a second after the stimulus has already come to the brain. 
That half a second is the processing time in which the ego comes about. So uh, in this half a second, which Freud called P conscious, and I agree with that term very much, if th there is the key to change. So when if we want to rewire in a new way, we must learn to be in the P-conscious. Valentino mentioned uh, expansion of consciousness, that's the key. If we learn to enter the P-conscious, our consciousness become more and more expanded. And the key to it is really creativity, positivity, um, all this stuff. We're going to take a break, and when we return, we'll continue the conversation with Dr. Valentina Onisor and Dr. Amit Goswami to learn more about their work and their newest book, The Quantum Brain, Understand, Rewire, and Optimize Your Brain. Please visit www.amitgoswami.org, on Twitter at Quantum Activist, on Facebook at Quantum Activism, and on Instagram, that's Amit Goswami, PhD. Here comes the pause. We'll be right back, and that is a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Continuing the conversation about brain boosting, the art of mental muscle toning. Let's get back to the combo with my guests, Dr. Amit Goswami and Dr. Valentina Onisor. Prior to the break, Amit was talking about the quantum self, the ego self, and this period of pre-conscious, which is where the key to change occurs. And Valentina, I'd love for you to weigh in and add to what Amit had started speaking about. Sure. So again, for reasons of survival, during our evolution, the brain has taken over the control over instinctual feelings connected with the lowest three chakras. I know if you know about the chakras, if not, we'll talk about that, which are related to the maintenance of the body and sexual reproduction mainly. And then we have also the heart chakra, which is about love. And the brain seems to have instinctualized at least two kinds of love, maternal love, romantic love, and uh, even a form of altruism. And um, so all the chakras, when they are open, we connect us with the um, positive, noble feelings, such as courage, for example, connected with the root chakra, but also with the navel chakra, and life force connected with the sex chakra, and self-love, by the way, which is very important for women to learn in the navel area, unconditional love at the heart chakra, joy of creative learning and expression in the throat chakra, clarity and satisfaction, following up intuition with creative insight, bringing at the level of the brow chakra, and uh, a kind of detachment, suspension of physical body attachment at the crown chakra. And for these noble feelings, we call them noble feelings, there are no instinctual brain circuits, not yet. 
Yeah. So in other words, unlike their negative counterpart, we spoke about the negative ones, right? But as you said, the potential is there also for the positive, and we need to tap into this potential. It's our duty, right? So there are a few built-in brain circuits which connect connected with the positive, noble feelings in our normal human condition. And here's the game changer to consider. Uh, that religions think that compassion for others comes naturally to us. But the quantum worldview is correcting that and says that compassion is universally available for us, but only as potentiality. And as we explore, experience and live these positive, noble emotions, feelings, we call them feelings at the level of the chakras and the meaning mind gives them, you know, such as compassion, like I said, you know, forgiveness, love and so on. We make memories of them and then we call them this a positive emotional brain circuits. So making those is a crucial part of the transformation because otherwise, again, in the, the conditioned state, we have embedded this negative emotional brain circuits. But again, it's our duty to really create these positive ones. And some people are saying that it's five times more difficult to really create and stabilize this kind of uh, circuits, you know, but truly it works because it, it will happen. It's again, so Many times we don't even know we pass through times of sufferance and crisis and we let these things put us down. But it shouldn't be like that, you know, because, again, it's it's our duty and we have the capacity to also create the positive ones, no matter where we are. I really like the way you phrase this about our duty. You know, that the, the almost the moral obligation to take care of this part of our world or this domain of our inner life in service to a healthy mind, healthy body and healthy and productive life. Right. And actually it's a responsibility which we should assume, you know, and then life on earth will change, you know, because for example, we give us all kinds of treats. We give us chocolates. We give us, I mean, for women, you know, how easy it is. You feel bad. You just go and get some <laughs> new shoes, or we go, you know, to this manicure stuff and we feel good. But how it would be if it would give us as a gift, a life of meaning, like, like choose, how to say, like strengthen this capacity of choosing something which is truly good and towards our higher good, not just lower good, you know, for today or for tomorrow, but kind of find what is important for us, what are our qualities, what is so that it, what is taking out, say, what is uh, making us manifest that those unique talents that only we have them in this life. This is a key. I mean, when you look at studies that have been done on human happiness and all of the positive psychology studies that have been done and in the treatment of depression, that finding that path of meaning, how we show up in the world, how we serve ourselves, our families and society for the highest and best good is probably, you know, when we're talking about depression, one of the best antidepressants available to us. Talk about mm -hmm. cancer, talk about Alzheimer's, you know, yeah. because these are diseases which when people find the meaning of their life, they find something higher. I mean, most of them, the ones who treated themselves like through miracle from the such things or even more autoimmune diseases, they all have this common denominator. They found a purpose to live for. Yeah. I mean, you were going to say something, please. The key is that... Uh, in the brain as is, we have become too centered in the rational mind, and we have lost touch with our intuitive facility. The intuitive facility is how 
consciousness connects to us, it's extrasensory. It does not come to us through physical stimuli, but stimuli that comes directly from consciousness. And to hear it, we have to have an opening of the chakra that is between the eyebrows called the brow chakra. And that chakra is uh, potentially a possibility of opening. It is not so difficult in, the, in our childhood. It's already open for every children. It is very open. But then the society, this is where the enculturation really, 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 really hurt us. The, when this um, uh, curious child is taught more to uh, information uh, processing by uh, initially it was computer games and now it is cell phone and social media as they start growing up. And, and that really is a huge, huge killer. Of course, apart from negative emotions, that also entered the picture, and we have to have very sensitive parenting. So in effect, we lose that uh, intuitive connection, and that is the crucial thing. So as adults, we have to bring that back in. And, and uh, if we bring that back in, that is how to revive, revive the quantum brain. Quantum brain comes to us in two ways. One is through intuition, uh, brow chakra, and the other, of course, is Valentin already touched on this. Uh, brain is in charge of the heart and the navel. We have to uh, push the brain aside and retake the control over our heart and the navel chakra, and then we have these positive emotions. So those are the two ways we connect to the archetypes, positive emotions in the body and the uh, intuitive thoughts in the brain. That is the way to get to the uh, quantum level of performance. And then you have health, happiness, prosperity, everything you want. You have choice back in your life. And it's a practice. I think that we all understand that to make these changes in our lives, we need to do it uh, perhaps we're scared. Maybe we're scared of change. So um, it's uh, it's daunting. We think, oh my gosh, it's going to take so much work to make this happen. But, you know, I think a small amount of practice every day, and then we start to see how these results come into our lives, leaves us wanting more, you know? And there's something that you mentioned about um, that what, what my takeaway was the domestication of us humans as children, right? That is that process of making us uh, proper humans, you know, where we take out the feral quality of, of, of us in a primal way, and maybe we can sit at the table and follow the rules and do things that society deems is appropriate, but it also dulls that curiosity and that wonder and delight and the childlike qualities that are so required in order to access intuition and to trust our guts. Excellent put, excellent put. And by the way, you have this beautiful quote on your Skype, which says everything. So even starting from there, from paying attention to the breathing, all that attention can be so much improved, you know, and this is how to start with creating that mental hygiene that needs to be there before going seriously in anything transformative. Yeah, the mental hygiene, I love that term. <laughs> And we all, we all need to have good mental hygiene. You know, there's so much emphasis on hand washing these days. Maybe we need to, you know, wash our minds a little bit. 
Yeah, and on a, the thing is that it has to. It's a the process is continuous, you know. Yes, it continues and it never ends, right? That's the part of the journey that I find so interesting about this work. Yeah, and transformation is continuous. It's not that you do only one month or two months, and it's 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 beautiful. So once you get to taste it, you're you're not getting tired of it. And this is the thing, Lisa, I mean, we, what we have to uh, teach uh, people, and this is what we do in our school of transformative education, that, look, pleasure is interesting, certainly. Molecules of emotions are important, and they give us a jolt of uh, happiness, certainly. But it is just a jolt and very, very, very temporary. This is, the, everybody knows that, but we are uh, unfortunately helpless because we don't know how to access real happiness. And so the point that they have to learn is that if we learn to access that be conscious by meditation, by creative process, by interest in meaning and purpose, then that is all that is needed because in that be conscious state, the, the consciousness expands and then they will feel uh, a kind of a lightness that isn't there usually. And this is how people can be motivated. Once they learn that you can, we can easily get into that lightness by simple practices. Valentina mentioned breathing, but there is also simple uh, hand movements like you can do in Tai Chi and Qigong. Yoga, that's an excellent way of getting into this. Or even contemplation, contemplation on, on meaning and purposeful things, that also can elevate us very easily. And most importantly, you know, this is the thing that we have lost the most. Today, most people's lives don't have too many relationships. We have a, a relationship very nuclear with our spouse or with our partner, but we really have lost social contact with other people. And this is yeah. very important because every time you relate, we have a chance to relate from the heart. And that will always bring to us this positive stuff in our life, this happiness in our life, expansion of consciousness. Beautifully put. And I think we need to reveal the quote on, on my Skype profile <laughs> so everybody knows. I say, breathe. What is it? What is it, Valentina? Breathe. It's good for you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it is, you know. Uh, just taking that breath. Sometimes that is the sweet joy in that moment, you know, have a good breath. We are out of time. And I want to thank my guests today, Dr. Valentina Onisor and Dr. Amit Goswami for sharing their beautiful work and their newest book, The Quantum Brain, Understand, Rewire and Optimize Your Brain. To learn more about the, the school in India and Amiko Swami's work, please visit www.amikoswami.org. On Twitter at Quantum Activists, on Facebook, um, that page is Quantum Activism. And on Instagram, Amit Goswami, PhD. Always come back and hang out with me because I there's never a conversation that I don't enjoy and our listeners don't enjoy. Thank you so much. Thank you, Thank Lisa. You. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen on behalf of my guests, Elaine Fox, Amit Goswami, and Valentina Onisor, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please go out and rock your day and remember to be kind to one another. 
Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with TogiNet Radio, KBUURadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.